there's a proportionate relationship between risk and adaptive change. The deeper the change and the greater the amount of new learning required, the more resistance there will be and thus the greater the danger to those who lead. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. All right, welcome to Post Everything, a podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. I am Brad Edwards, and I have my friend here, John Homus from sunny Florida. And this is the second part of our kind of subtitle for this whole endeavor of rethinking leadership. What do we mean by that? Part one, we really kind of introduced these categories from the book Leadership on the Line and talked about the difference between technical and adaptive leadership. And so we're going to be assuming that for the whole episode and going from here on out. So if you haven't listened to that one and this is at all a little bit confusing, I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to part one. But today, what we're going to focus on is how do we rethink leadership through an adaptive lens? Oh, that sounds good. I'm excited. Yeah. So we just talked about the technical versus adaptive leadership. So like, okay, what's the so what's? We're going to start getting into some nuts and bolts and talk about what does that even look like? I think it's important, John, to really kind of root this in the kind of first half of this season one of the podcast where we talked about what it's like to live in a liminal age. Yes. Yeah. And that means that we are in the midst of a kind of erosion of social consensus, rapid technological and cultural change, socioeconomic dynamics that like, it's just brand new. What does conservative and liberal even mean anymore? Like, I mean, it's just exactly across the board. We don't have the same handholds and categories for understanding the world around us that we used to. And so in the midst of that, that environment, it's going to feel increasingly inhospitable, right? Mm. You can totally press this analogy too far, but if you think about this liminal age as a kind of rapid onset cultural climate change, right? Like things are happening that didn't used to happen nearly as frequent. Like El Nino, that's cute compared to everything that's going on right now, right? (laughs) And so in that inhospitable and, and liminal environment, man, we need some greenhouses, okay? We need some institutions that provide some shelter that had the effects and slow down the experience of that change, even if we can't affect everything in the environment around us. And so what that means is when we talk about rethinking leadership, that especially has to mean adopting and having a far more institutional mindset than I think we're used to. Right. Yeah. Especially Brad, because we tend to think of an institution as maybe a bad thing. Yeah. Bureaucratic, slow, corrupt, yes. compromised. Absolutely. Yeah. But you don't mean it that way at all. No. I think especially this is where the greenhouse analogy is really helpful because I think it is at its core, it means recovering the idea of an institution and a role in an institution less as a platform, which is how, I mean, the language of platform like jumped into our vocabulary not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And now everything's a platform. Um, But it's not a platform, it's a mold, Hmm. or I would say a greenhouse, right? And what that means, having an institutional mindset means that as a leader, we see our team 
our community, our organization, even your neighborhood. I've heard neighborhoods being referred to as the invisible institution because there is an institutional dynamic in a neighborhood. But seeing that group of people through the lens of a greenhouse, which means that at least part of your mission, if not the primary aspect of your mission as a leader, is to grow them. And to do so in these more hospitable environments and communities where that technical and adaptive growth can happen, right? Interesting. Yes. Right. So let's break it down. Let's use the categories we talked about last time, right? If you think about a greenhouse, it is a technical refuge. A greenhouse provides nourishment and support, right? There are people who are doing the watering and the fertilizing of the plants, aka the people in this analogy. They are caring for and nourishing those plants. And it's happening within the context of that. So it's scale, it's happening because they're involved and they're within the greenhouse walls, right? A greenhouse also kind of narrows the window of variability and the rate of change from the world outside, right? So it in Colorado, we can have the temperature swing 50 degrees within one day. Wow. It can be below freezing overnight and still get into like low 60s. A greenhouse is going to be a stabilizing environment within that unstable, broader general environment. And so it pads and mitigates the shock of that change, right? Yeah, that makes sense. That's especially important for any plants or people, right, who are brought in from the outside. They've been uprooted from somewhere. So if you live in a transient place, this is going to be even more important for them that there's an institutional fabric they can plug into. It also mitigates the risk, like it functions as a training wheel or like a laboratory for testing in a controlled environment. So people should have more freedom to fail, to make mistakes, to take risk. And that's really important because it's not just a technical refuge. It's an adaptive growth space, right? You have opportunity to practice meaningful action within a greenhouse. Number one, you're going to get the confidence and the assurance that exercising your agency, producing that fruit happened. Like, so you, you get to see success and that means, wow, I feel more comfortable doing this outside the greenhouse, right? Mm. You also get pruned. <laughs> John 15, Jesus says that it's the branches of the vine that bear fruit that get pruned, not the ones that suck at bearing fruit. It's the ones that actually mm. succeed in bearing fruit. He's like, yeah, wow. I'm going to prune so that you can bear more fruit. This should be a space for even deeper and greater growth opportunity, particularly in ways that help you bear more fruit. But it, all, all in all, like the whole point of this is that your, your resilience increases, that you have opportunity and you are, are grown and nurtured in such a way that your roots deepen so that you are more able to weather life outside of the greenhouse, right? Yeah, yeah. So now- when we use this language, though, like also, it wouldn't it be easy, John, if like every greenhouse were the same? Yeah, absolutely. And you could just you know what like, you were getting. Yeah, you'd know what you're getting, right? It would be easy to say like, this is the way that you should do it in every single place and space and time and community. But greenhouses are not hermetically sealed, right? They're porous. They're not a Mars habitat. They're a greenhouse. And that means... Biosphere, right? Yeah, right? So whenever you design a greenhouse... The same greenhouse that's going to work in Hawaii. I don't know. You probably wouldn't need a greenhouse in Hawaii. That's actually destroying. No, the we don't need one in South Florida because South Florida is a greenhouse. There you so. go. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So the greenhouse here, here's an example. The greenhouse that you might build in Colorado is going to be very different from the greenhouse that you would build in the desert. 
okay, in, sure. in Arizona, yep. right, or uh, or Minnesota, right? It's just going to be completely different. Elevation, all of those variables are important to consider. And so an institutional mindset means you are contextualizing it, not just figuring out what should happen within the greenhouse in a vacuum, but in the environment that your greenhouse, your institution is in. Yeah. The environmental dynamics there are all really important. So let me make sure I'm on the same page with you. So yeah. everything's changing. We're saying that everything that's changing in our culture is kind of like a rapid climate change. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of a rapid climate change, what would keep plants and trees growing is if they were in a greenhouse. So we're comparing neighborhoods, organizations, institutions to greenhouses where people can find a place to grow and stabilize in the midst of our culture that's changing so quickly. Bingo. Because you know what? It turns out it's really hard to flourish in a hurricane. Yes, we know. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Great. So John, like that is the environment and it's really neat and clean and cool when you're talking about the analogy of a greenhouse. But like what... Where do you even start in rethinking institutionally? Like how, how do we go about adopting that institutional mindset? Yeah, I think it starts with us or you, listener, as the leader. It really starts there. And, and even reframing what you are trying to do as a leader when you lead people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's fair. Let's start there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's break that down and... and Maybe even like three nice and neat, clean steps that their cleanness is not a reflection of their ease. Well, we are Presbyterians, so three three points makes sense. There you go. That's that's exactly right. So step one would be this: like we've got to reset our expectations. Mm-hmm. We don't live in Florida where a greenhouse isn't needed. So if we act like we live in Florida and we lead like we live in Florida, but we actually live in Death Valley, it's going to be really an unpleasant experience. And so we've got to reset our expectations. One of my favorite quotes is disappointment is the result of unmet expectations. And we need to know that doing this and building a greenhouse and then caring for and nurturing the plants within the greenhouse, pruning, it's dangerous. And so we've got to know that what we're doing is going to be hard and also not only just hard, but significantly harder if we are doing it right. In the Leadership on the Line book, there's this great quote that kind of like sums this up. Uh, They say, Heifetz and Linsky say, in fact, there's a proportionate relationship between risk and adaptive change. The deeper the change and the greater the amount of new learning required, the more resistance there will Hmm. be and thus the greater the danger to those who lead. Yikes. For this reason, people often try to avoid the dangers either consciously or subconsciously by treating an adaptive challenge as if it were a technical one. This is why we see so much more routine management and leadership in our society. Let me anticipate maybe a possible objection, even as I'm saying that leadership is dangerous, right? There are leaders out there who will use the fact that people react poorly to them as proof that they're doing it right. right? (laughs) And in fact, maybe abusing their power and not leading well, that is not an automatic like signal or sign that you are, uh, you know, above reproach and doing this right. No, you've got to actually dig deeper and ask why. However, doing it right doesn't mean leading safely. It's not possible to do that and actually prune at the same time, right? Mm. And so actually that, that image of pruning is super helpful because 
it's dangerous for two reasons, because one, well, I mean, obviously pruning hurts, right? Because pruning involves loss and risk because to persuade people, and one more quote in this book, uh, to persuade people to give up the love they know, even if that love isn't satisfying, for a love that they've never experienced means convincing them to take a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. We talked about health last time and you know your doctor telling you to take a pill and exercise, right? Regular exercise requires you to give something up to prioritize to prioritize it, to make time and space, you know, like I got to give up the donuts and I have a deep and profound love for all things pastry, right? I'm not going to get healthy and I don't know what it feels like to feel healthier until I give up the thing that's preventing it. There's a loss there. There's a sacrifice. Secondly, pruning doesn't just hurt. It gets really actually close to the roots. A lot of times it's rooted in our identity Again, Heifetz and Linsky say habits, values, and attitudes, even dysfunctional ones, are part of one's identity. To change the way people see and do things is to challenge how they define themselves. If you are a plant and not a rock, but you have been living as if you are a rock, it will be really hard to stop living as a rock, not just because there is some kind of pruning involved or there's a change in mindset. It actually gets to like seeing who you are differently. John, you and I are pastors, like one of the hardest aspects of pastoring is helping people who believe they are beloved in Christ behave as if they are beloved in Christ, right? (laughs) Yes. And it's not because they don't want to necessarily, or because they don't think that that's a good thing. It's often because there are areas that they actually don't fully believe that they're beloved and that's what's driving them to behave otherwise, right? So it is absolutely linked to our identity. And that requires real sensitivity and wisdom and care and man, trusting, like persuading people who, especially in the midst of a hurricane, trust you less than they ever have before to make that kind of a change. It's hard and it's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And changing expectations Resetting expectations for yourself is challenging and for others, it really messes with people and it's challenging. That's why I love the book that we mentioned last week, Canoeing the Mountains. Mm. That's kind of the other book we're bringing into this leadership conversation because I think the paradigm that Todd Bolsinger brings out of that book is it's just so cathartic because I think a lot of leaders (laughs) feel this way. And the framework he talks about is how Lewis and Clark were going to take rivers to the Northwest Passage and they were going to take boats and figure out a way to get all the way to the West Coast. But surprise, surprise, they hit the Rocky Mountains and all of a sudden they are not even close to being the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. and their canoes are now a liability, not the thing that's going to get them where they want to go. And all of a sudden their expectations are just smashed. So they don't have the right tools. They don't even have a map that's accurate about where they're going, but they've got to get there. And Bolsinger in his book uses that as a framework. And I think that just resonates with a lot of people as we live in this post everything world, this liminal space. But his definition of leadership is actually really helpful Mm. because he says leadership is energizing a community of people towards their own transformation 
in order to accomplish a shared mission in the face of a changing world. So it's not just about getting people to a certain point. It's rather about those people being shaped and changed, being willing to become the kind of people who can accomplish something together. And so that's a really helpful definition of leadership. But the challenge is, I think once you read that, you're like, man, I'm not sure I have this in me. I just got to the Rocky Mountains and I realized I'm not even close. And you're telling me I got to rethink not only what we're doing, but how to help these people change. But here's a good thing. I think a lot of leaders right now are saying that same thing. I don't think I have this in me. I mean, you know? like John, like you and I, we're church planners, right? Yes. You don't sign up for that gig expecting ease. And we knew what we were getting into in that. Did we? <laughs> I, I mean, well, okay. Well, we thought we knew, right? And we also knew that we didn't know what we were getting into. Yeah. It's the uh, the known unknown, right? Right. But I can imagine for a lot of leaders out there who are like, yeah, you two are insane. That's bonkers. I'm not even there. And so for you and I to feel like, I don't even think I have this in me either. I hope is validating for people to listen because like there's yeah. nobody who like – if everything we've said so far, you're like, totally, yeah, I can do that. You have not heard everything we've said so far. No, right? go back and listen again. <laughs> yeah, or you have heard it, but you have not done it yet, or you have yeah. not tried. I'm wanting to make this point because I think we've all realized and recognized how the broader cultural environment has changed, but I yes. don't think that we have fully wrestled or grappled with how much change that's going to require of us. And yeah. also how, how, how much of what we're feeling is actually connected and rooted into that, even if we haven't connected those dots yet. Right. Yeah. So people and leaders are probably feeling some pressure points, some places where whether they want to be or not, their leadership actions are being pruned. One of those areas that Bolsinger brings up is speaking. It used to be that like good speaking gathered a crowd or that was leading, like speaking mm -hmm. was leading. But here's the reality in this technological era, like there are thousands of better speakers than you and me, Brad. And now we are just a myriad of voices online. And so, you know, if we're relying on good speaking to be leading, we're going to be disappointed. People don't just follow us because you're a good speaker. Yeah. And it's not that, okay, well, why compete? Like you don't stop doing that. It's that right. it doesn't carry the same potency or, yes. or have the same impact that it used to because the environment's changed. And so, exactly. yeah, absolutely. I think another area is just gathering people. There's a great quote that Todd Bolsinger says on page 28. He says, as pastors, we were trained to teach those who come on their own to care for those who call for help and to lead those who volunteer, and to administer the resources of those who willingly give and participate. Mm. And he goes on and says, now we are called to minister to a passing parade of people who treat us like we are but one option in their personal salad bar of self-fulfillment. To do so will take a significant shift in thinking about pastoral leadership. Oh man. I read a, an article recently. I don't even remember where this was. They made the point that sometime in the last, I don't know, five to seven years, I think they said 
that in the college ministry that they were a part of, he saw a very marked shift from FOMO to FOBO. And FOMO being fear of missing out. And when the fear is of missing out, then he said, basically, all you have to do is tell college students that all of your peers are going to be there. And so then they'll come, <laughs> right? But he says, FOBO or fear of a better option, yeah, that doesn't work. In yeah. fact, it's the opposite because if all your peers are going to be there, then like, well, that's probably not where the best option is. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I think that's on the nose. Like other people are saying that very, maybe yeah. even in different ways, but that's a real challenge. And I think even too, not just people's mindsets, but the reality of where you live. So if, if you happen to live in a more transient area, we live in a very transient area. And I think Boulder is somewhat transient, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. especially in the sense that like nobody who is here now is from here. They're from somewhere else. So they may not, they may not be leaving here within a few years of getting here, but they don't have any roots. There are no roots yeah. here for sure. Yeah. The third thing where we see just some pressure points is the reality of the pain of the people that you're leading as society changes, as the map gets less and less relevant, mm. it's really stressful on people. Yeah, Their model of how the world should be is changing. And when it gets painful for them like that, you have to shepherd them or lead them through their pain. They might even lash out against you. Mm. And so that is why we have to expect something different. That's why we have to reset our expectations. Yeah, that this is going to be hard, that it's going to require us to change adaptively before we even help other people change adaptively. And so if that's step one, then step two is part of the expectations that you're resetting is not just that this is dangerous, but specifically, we should expect sabotage. Now, mm. again, I want to be like particularly careful and nuanced with this. Sabotage is not an intentional effort to ruin you as a leader or to tear down your institution. It, it might be, it might be a conscious and willful effort to do so, but that is not necessarily what we're talking about. Okay. Heifetz and Linsky say that leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. And that is absolutely true. So mm -hmm. sabotage is what happens when your people don't feel like they can absorb any more disappointment or disequilibrium, that they are in that pain point that you just described, John. And, you know, if you remember last week, we we're talking about the limit of tolerance on this kind of X and Y graph you were imagining, they are above that limit of tolerance. And when you are above that part of your way of trying to bring your disequilibrium down to find some stability, we often react really poorly in those situations because we're stressed, right? Like every pastor, every leader has stories of what it was like to lead in the first, you know, six and 12 months after the pandemic hit the U S mm -hmm. right. The important point here is that whether that is objectively true or not, whether that stress is something that you would consider proportional to their reaction, it doesn't matter because what matters is the context that is their experience. Right. That doesn't mean it's okay or it's right, but it does mean like how you would gauge it or how you would respond and that is irrelevant. Yeah. And so the way that they kind of fill this out, Heifetz and Linsky, they say there's four faces of danger, right? These are instinctual responses to adaptive pressure. And again, you'll see that in the midst of this, that not all of these are conscious or intentional things, right? So the first one is this, it's marginalization. 
And marginalization is being silenced or sidelined from influencing a group or a situation. Okay. And this often happens through technical solutions, right? A lot of the times the marginalization happens by having a technical solution introduced as a way of avoiding the deeper adaptive change. A good example is when I was a first and assistant pastor at a church, there was this guy, he's so well-meaning and so well-intending. He was a Boy Scout troop leader. He was like super invested and super involved. And man, he wanted our church to adopt that Boy Scout troop as a, like, as a ministry and to like sponsor it to all in. And one of the ways in hindsight, this was not the way that we should have handled it was be like, Hey, you know what? The Boy Scout troop can use our building. And it was a way of saying, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we, we, we are adopting the ministry. Like we use the building, but it also helped us avoid making Sunday morning announcements about it and encouraging people to do it because there's some conflicts <laughs> of interest there. Right. But what the elders of my church that I was a part of an assistant pastor for at the time, what we failed to do in leading him adaptively, what we should have done was say, Hey man, here's the thing. Let me explain to you like the reasons why we can't fully adopt this as a ministry. Like there's some conflicts of interest here. The Boy Scout troop leader in our area and region, we don't really like the way that he leads. And if we adopt your Boy Scout troop, then that means we have to say yes to these other things over here. And I'm sorry, yeah. the answer is just going to be no. You can still use our building, but we really want to help you see and understand that this is a lot more complicated than you think it is. Yeah. And that was, that was how we should have handled it. That's the first one. The second one is diversion, which is adding to or broadening your agenda, often with good things or valid needs to make you lose focus on adaptive priorities. Hmm. Man, I, John, I can't even tell you the first few years of planting, I felt like this was the single most common danger that I faced and I didn't know it, right? Hmm. Because what diversion is, it's actually good and valid and important things that get added onto your plate that are outside the scope of what you really need to do to focus on adaptive growth is a distraction, right? Yeah. And this is probably a greater risk for those in higher up authority positions because it comes in the form of people's demands or questions or, again, those are good things. <laughs> There's an example that they list in the book that I think is quite as funny as it is relatable, uh, following Marty Linsky, a conversation with a leader, he said, what happened? Marty asked, it says, it's this amazing thing. This leader replied, I've never been so busy. My appointment calendar is full and each meeting is important. Many are contentious. I'm working more hours than I ever did before. I'm exhausted at the end of every day. I take work home on the weekend, but I've barely begun to work on my agenda and the reason I was hired. I finally realized that since I've been in the job, I've only seen a hundred or so people. That's funny. I've only seen a hundred or so people. It's as if they all got together, whatever their differences, and agreed to keep me so busy with their list that I never get to anything on my list. <laughs> Again, I think that I hope illustrates that this is an almost like a systemic response. It's not an individual intentional response a lot of times, but it yeah. is absolutely just as much a danger of leading adaptively and having this posture because this stuff starts to bubble up almost immediately when you hit a pressure point, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So marginalization, diversion, another one is just attack. It's far <laughs> more straightforward, right? You feel it coming or you see it coming. There's danger involved and it often focuses on you as the leader 
rather than the content of your message. So this would mm -hmm. be, you know, character assassination, things like that. And this is typically where we think about the word sabotage, although sabotage can be any of the other things that we mentioned. One of the great things, the only good thing about being sabotaged, though, is you do get to say, ha, a saboteur, which is the only time in life that you get to say that. But um, <laughs> Oh, man, that's good. Bittersweet. Here's the thing is people are reacting out of fear. They're reacting out of care or concern for things, and they take it out on you. Mm -hmm. So there is a sense where there's really an opportunity in the midst of an attack to care for someone and build trust, although that's really hard. But even in the midst of the attack, there can be an advantage because if people are bringing concerns to you, even if they're doing it in an angry way, you're learning maybe some of the holes in the plan as you go forward. Mm -hmm. Bolsinger calls it the canaries in the coal mine. Hmm. So you almost have to like see it in a different way. Maybe that helps you remain calm. It's hard because you're going to make mistakes and people are going to light into you and people are going to attack you. That's just part of leading. That's what we signed up for, even though we don't like that part. But the attack, the sabotage, the more direct attack can actually be something that is an opportunity for us. Yeah. And maybe even put just a little bit of flesh on that, that I think every pastor can identify with this. What makes this difficult is, for example, maybe you're trying to shepherd somebody and care for somebody and you're doing that hard adaptive work of like pointing them to where their behavior is demonstrating that they don't fully believe that they're beloved. And this is mm. how that manifests. I know, John, like you haven't made any mistakes or had any failures in terms of how you just three, just that, three. man, yeah. well done. <laughs> but I, I've had a lot, right, in shepherding and caring for people. And what makes this one particularly difficult is a lot of times when the reaction is you have failed in shepherding me well, for whatever the reason is, and they, maybe they can point to it. And let's say they're right hmm. and you agree with them. The hard part about this is that can be true and used to avoid the adaptive growth and change. Yeah. It can still become an excuse or a reason not to change because you made a mistake in some way or you didn't meet with me frequently enough or when I canceled, you didn't follow up with me. It's just like, well, I had a good reason. Like I had all these other things blow up that week or whatever. It doesn't matter. And that can be true, but often... When that is something that becomes a roadblock for their ongoing shepherding, that's when you know that this is actually a response to adaptive challenge also. Mm -hmm. Again, both can be true at the same time. That's what makes yeah. this so hard. All right, the last phase of danger that they cover is seduction. And seduction is the process by which you lose your sense of purpose altogether and therefore get taken out of action by an initiative likely to succeed because it has a special appeal to you. Talk about that. That sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's... I think for a lot of leaders, especially when you are a leader who is highly relational, this will become a temptation, especially in approval and affirmation. A good example of seduction is someone you respect or you really need to be on board with something. And so you, instead of pressing them to change and to grow in areas you know and are actually needed areas of growth, you don't confront that because you need them in this other area. And so this mm -hmm. becomes a cycle of you, in, in some ways, marginalizing yourself because you don't feel like you can risk their disapproval by pressing into that need for growth. John, I had the very 
fortunate gift as a church planter of failing before launch the first time, <laughs> right? We had launch team 1.0, which was very different from 2.0. And in launch team 1.0, I so badly wanted to do the opposite of my first call as a pastor where I, I went through a real, it was a really hard call and a really hard role. And I saw a lot of people who were burned badly by leadership. I did not want to do that. And I swung the pendulum in the other direction to the degree that I did the cardinal sin of pastoring, which was choosing a vision democratically. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Yeah, I can see why you needed to go to 2.0. Yeah. 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 And the hard part was when I realized how much I had made that mistake in part because I wanted to bring everybody along, which is a good desire, right? But that opened me up to seduction in a way that everybody knew I wanted to bring everybody along. And even like in ways that were unintentional, people would just react and respond in ways that kind of leveraged that. And mm -hmm. so when I realized that and changed and did it differently, we lost all but like two families from that oh, launch wow. team. And it was That's tough. It was a huge failure on my part. But I mean, I learned from it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So those are the four faces of seduction. John, how about you intro step three here? Yeah. So step three is respond wisely to reactivity. We use the phrase, get on the balcony, get up high and see what's going on. If all this liminality, if all this change, if all this need to adapt is like a dance floor, you've got to get up and see up high what dance is happening, especially if the dance is changing in and of itself. It's hard to see in the midst of people just moving around, whether they're doing the waltz or, um, you know, I don't know. I'm not a dancer. So whatever, whatever other dances are out there, yeah. but respond wisely by getting up on the balcony. I mean, I remember the electric slide and if it's not the electric slide, I'm going to be confused anyway. Cause you know, I remember my eighth grade school dance anyway. Yeah. We're going down so, a rabbit hole there. Yeah, really, We're going to avoid that further. Like Brad's middle school experience is not something we want to broadcast publicly. <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a very different podcast that is probably going to need to involve my therapist. But um, <laughs> yeah, when you realize these four faces of danger are showing their face, so to speak, but you're not going to be able to respond wisely to that reactivity if you are still on the dance floor. And so getting that perspective, taking a deep breath, going big picture and asking the questions of like, okay, how do I even diagnose this? Like, what does that look like? Mm. And so again, Leadership on the Line offers these four fantastic handholds and different patterns and ways that you can distinguish between a technical and adaptive challenge that you are confronted with. Because again, their thesis, what we talked about last time, is that most leadership failures in organizations are a failure to distinguish between these two. And so everything that we've been talking about up to this point, this is where you are paid the big bucks is to distinguish these and not just react either by through capitulating or responding in kind to those four faces of danger. That doesn't grow anybody. That's not an institutional mindset. So here's how you diagnose, right? Here's four patterns or dynamics that are going to help you to make that distinction. And this is really helpful to keep in mind while you're facing these four faces of danger. First is this. If something is deeply rooted, deeply rooted, you know you're dealing with something more than a technical issue when people's hearts and minds need to change. And it's not just an issue of preference or what they're used to or mm. habits, right? 
cultures have to distinguish what is essential from what is expendable if they're going to move forward. So whether that yeah. is a church culture or a corporate team culture, I'm sure even as I'm describing this and have this definition in mind, there are things that you are coming to mind like, yeah, I don't understand why the people I'm trying to lead are dying on this hill. It makes no sense. That's how yeah. you know it's something that's deeply rooted because it's not right. just a preference. They are anticipating loss of. So deeply rooted. Helpful. Second is you can diagnose it's an adaptive challenge through the process of exclusion. Like, let's say, I don't even know anyone who would ever feel this way, but let's say you have infinite resources in the world and you can execute any and every possible technical solution available to you and that you can imagine if you throw all of those at it and the problem is still there then that's how you know it's an adaptive challenge right and you probably don't need to throw all of them at it but maybe you've tried two or three different things and it's still happening that's yeah, yeah. that's when you got to get on the balcony and ask like what is it what's the root issue here that right. is rooted or connected to somebody's identity or that some loss is being threatened that this is provoking. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of like, uh, you know, Lewis and Clark with the canoes, if they had tried to take the canoes upstream and that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And then they try and put wheels on the canoes to go up the mountains and that doesn't work <laughs> by process of exclusion. They're figuring <laughs> out we need something different than these canoes. We've got to awesome. Uh, yeah, exactly. Number three is persistent conflict. The persistence of conflict usually indicates people have not yet made the adjustments and accepted the losses that accompany adaptive change. As I'm reading our notes on this and talking about it, John, I'm actually being taken back to a period before the pandemic and probably like the nine months leading up to it, where as a church plant of right around three years old, we celebrated the fact that we had people from a pretty wide spectrum of especially like political, but also like ecclesial kind of different church kinds of approaches and backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds. There are a lot of people who call the table their home. Hmm. But at the time we had what we called a pastoral team. These were like shepherding gifted um, potential elders. Our pastoral team at the time, we had 19, we had 19 families on our list for shepherding and caring for people. And there was so much going on. And in hindsight, and especially once we started to clarify the vision that fall leading up to the pandemic, a lot of those families left. And in part because there was this persistence of conflict that was caused by people who, again, not maliciously at all, but were feeling a difference of vision and purpose that our church was about, that they were like, that's not what I'm about. And I don't want to change to adapt to that. So I want the church to adapt to me. And that's where the conflict in a lot of ways was coming from. Like I wanted it to be done the way that I prefer, but it was rooted in something much deeper than just a preference. And that persistent conflict was actually a, a symptom of that kind of adaptive resistance hmm. that was kind of sparking up. So, Yeah. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. All right. So the last one is this uh, crisis decision making. Okay. So deeply rooted process of exclusion, persistent conflict and crisis decision making. They say that crisis is a good indicator of adaptive issues that have festered. It represents danger because the stakes are high 
and time up here is short, and the uncertainties are great. And yet they also represent opportunities if they are used to galvanize attention on the unresolved issues. So sometimes the change that you are trying to lead in your institution, in the greenhouse, unbeknownst to you, maybe you don't, you're not even aware of it, but it kind of sparks a crisis or a feeling of crisis. And so you see this kind of all happen at once. In the example I was just sharing a moment ago, it was, man, the people who ended up leaving the table, it came to a head in the wake of what we called Vision Sunday, where we said like, hey, we're going to kind of do like a reset and really clarify vision. And here's where we're going for the next one year, three year and five years. And that clarity created a crisis and it sparked a lot of conversations that were like, I either have to stay or go. And it was like, wow, I wish, honestly, I, I, I did not see it as an opportunity then. I was grieving it and feeling overwhelmed and didn't know what to do with it because it caught me really off guard. But that's exactly what's being described here. Like when you yeah. provide some of that leadership, either technical and adaptive, when that's part of the reaction and there's that urgency, you're touching on something and it can be an opportunity. Exactly. You know, all this is so helpful, but at the same time, it's a little overwhelming. You know, there are times when I feel so challenged by the task of canoeing the mountains, the task of adaptive leadership, that it just feels so easy to fall into despair. I remember mm -hmm. one time someone bought me a book on like leading an organization, and this is you know, during a tough time of leading, it must've been during COVID, but I remember opening it up and like reading the first two pages and just feeling like, oh, I can't do all this. Like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you hear everything that we're talking about and you're like, oh no, this is too much for me. I'm discouraged. Let me encourage you. It's normal to feel that way. Yes. You're actually in the process of becoming an adaptive leader. You're grieving, you're wrestling, you're chewing on things. And it's okay that you're experiencing that process of despair and grieving. What I want to say to you is don't quit leading and for sure don't quit leading. But, <laughs> definitely but, don't quit. Yeah. Definitely don't quit. But come back next week and next episode, we're really going to focus in on what is needed to inside the adaptive leader. So we kind of talked about what the adaptive leader does externally, the actions and attitudes and posture the leader takes. But next week, we want to focus on how an adaptive leader rethinks leading themselves so that you actually are resourced, you have the energy levels, you have the spiritual depth to take people through all these things that we're putting out in front of you. So please listen to the next episode. We're really excited to kind of resource you. And if there's anything that, John, you and I hope that the listener takes away from this, it's that the weight that you're probably feeling right now, like that is not because of the task or the challenge ahead of you so much as it is our bringing up and stirring up the challenge and the task that you have already been doing. And so everything that we've talked about today, to the degree that you're feeling this weight, that's not because this is something more than you've already been doing. It's because we're stirring it and bringing it up. The point that we're trying to do is to give you some handholds to maybe rearrange the furniture in your brain a little bit so that we can then grab onto it better 
and organize it a little bit differently to understand that, hey, maybe this difficulty and challenge I've been experiencing, this weight I've been feeling is not because I'm a failure. It's actually because I'm doing the thing that is most important for people who need a greenhouse in the midst of that hurricane. And that's actually weirdly counterintuitive good news. We're going to talk about like what to do with that a lot more next week. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, man. You guys take care. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.